Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I really needed that this morning. I'm very thankful and excited, honestly excited about what what God has to share this morning and what I feel like He's shown me in His Word. But I do need to start off on a bit of a somber note because I was reading the news just a few weeks ago and another story again, yet again, about another church um, where abuse and crime is happening in the church, and I think we'd all agree it's really sad to see and, and to read about. But the thing is, it real, there's really nothing new about it, if you think about it. I'm not even talking about recent American history. I'm talking about what you can open up your Bibles and read about. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 5, right, Paul called out the church for continuing in fellowship for a man that was practicing incest with his father's wife. I don't even want to think about that. And then in chapter 6, he moves on and says, hey, can you guys stop? Don't take each other to court. Don't take each other to court. We're going to judge the world someday, so you, you, kinda, you don't need to ask the, judge, the world to judge us. So yeah, I think there's, there's always been some, some messed up problems, if you think about it, in the church. And it, you know, I don't mention all that to discourage you or to tell you to hate the church. I, I do not want to do that this morning. I mean, the, the beauty of the church is not in the perfection of people, if you think about it. It's in the saving grace of, of Jesus Christ. It's in Him. That's where the beauty of the church is. However, my point is, when, when pastors and congregations do not acknowledge sin as sin, don't deal with sin as sin, and don't treat sin as sin, that's when we really start to have a problem on our hands. I mean, don't hear me wrong. I don't think we should take the blame for one local church wherever else, or we should take the blame for the church at large, whatever we mean by that. There are still many biblical churches that are bringing glory to the name of Christ and, I, I, and not shame to his witness. And I completely believe that our church is one of those churches. But what happened to the church at Corinth? Right? What, what happened to the churches that we keep, and ministers that, that we keep reading about in, in the news? Well, I think that's a complicated question that could probably be answered in, well in, in a variety of ways. But I think the heart of the issue really lies in the fact that the church is either complacent, confused, or unmotivated in the call to be holy. Many of us are praying for nationwide revival. We just sang about that, and I hope you continue. I'm praying for that. But I really don't think we're going to see it. I really don't think we're going to see it until the church gets serious about holiness. The Word of God is crystal clear on our call to be holy as Christ followers in 1 Peter 1, 15-16, which says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That last part there is a direct quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus, in about three different places. Notice also that the letter is written to New Testament believers and that the work of Jesus did not abolish this command from God. It didn't abolish this command to be holy. In fact, the work of Christ is actually the very thing that enables us, enables us to live holy lives unto God. Think about it this way with me for a second. Okay, if the, if the, if the gospel, if the cross is a bridge between us, sinful man, and a holy God, well... It's not really that God made himself sinful or that God made himself unholy. It's that he made us holy by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is holiness? 
The word, the word holy in the Bible is all about being set apart and different than other people, other things, or other nations. The very first place we see the word holy in the Bible is actually in, in Genesis 2-3, where God sets apart that last day of creation, the day that God rested. It's set apart from the other six days that God worked. You know, holiness in the Bible is really kind of, it means set apart, it means this kind of sacred uniqueness, and, and unique in the, in, the, in the full sense of that word. I know that's kind of been eroded as far as a word and the definition of the word, but truly one of a kind, set apart. In relation to God's character, the fact that God is holy refers to His perfection. It refers to the fact that he, He's not sinful. He's not under the curse of Adam. He's not under the corruption in our world. In fact, I would argue that every aspect of God's nature, His presence, His holiness, His grace, His love, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to list about God, it's holy. That's just who God is. He is set apart. The truth is most of us in this room don't really have that much trouble understanding that. We, we get that. Okay, God's holy. Yeah, yes, God is holy. I, I think our problem is with God's call for us to be holy like He is holy. And I think that the root of this issue lies in two misunderstandings mainly. One, if we're already made holy by salvation when we're saved, then why do we need to keep chasing after the thing that we've already attained? Um, and then two, we know ourselves too well to think that we can actually be holy and exactly perfect just like God while we're here on earth. And I want to hit these head on before we move on into the Word today and move deeper. I think both of these objections for the call to be holy can really be answered well with one answer, mainly found in the book of Romans and throughout your Bible. Uh, however, I will aim to be a little briefer than the Apostle Paul because I've got a little more to say today. There are th really three big Christianese theological words that we need to define this morning. You've got justification, sanctification, and glorification, okay? Justification is what happens at the moment of salvation when we're, when we're justified and made right before God, when we're declared innocent and not guilty. This is the moment in which the grace of Christ redefines us as holy children of God. This is a moment of when our identity changes. Sanctification is the combination of the empowering Holy Spirit and our choice to be more like Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit there to do that. Uh, and sanctification is really necessary. Why is that necessary? Why do we need to be sanctified if we've already been justified? If we've already been made right with God, why do we need to keep trying to be, trying to be right with God? Well, it's because we live in sinful bodies on a sinful earth still. And then that points next to glorification, which is the end of the process when we're actually with Jesus uh, eternally and we're, we're glorified, our bodies, we're given new bodies, and we don't have to deal with this whole sin issue anymore and the fight that's really described in Romans 6 and 7 and 8 um, for a total picture there. But that's over, and we're made complete. So now let me go back to our two main objections to this idea of us being holy like God is holy. I mean, really wrapping our heads around it. You know, I think, I think mainly our trouble is, is with this is because holiness means something slightly different in each one of these theological stages or words. When we're justified, holiness becomes a part of our identity. When we're sanctified, when we're being sanctified, holiness is proving that new identity. It's saying, hey, I ha there's a change inside of me, and I'm going to live that out while I'm still here on earth. 
And then when we're glorified, holiness will be made perfect and complete in us as we will be fully made to be like Christ without sinful bodies, not on a sinful earth. What all of this means is that while we still live here on earth, we should be in a constant state of proving, not earning, our salvation by pursuing holiness. But the knowledge of this truth really begs another question. How do we pursue holiness in the world we live in? I mean, with everything that surrounds us every single day, how can we really be holy and set apart? How can we be holy as God is holy? Okay, that's like three questions. But they all have the same answer. We've already been talking about 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, and today we will find our how-to guide on holiness in the greater context of this passage, and starting in verse 13 and ending in verse 19. So you can follow along in your bulletins, uh, you can look up on screen, or you can look in your Bible this morning. But before we start, verse 13 starts with the word, therefore. So I think it's important just to briefly cover what that uh, previous passage is about, because that word, therefore, is referring back. And more or less, in a, a very short summary, before the passage we're going to read today, Peter is talking about the incredible inheritance that we've been given in Jesus. He's talking about the mystery of the gospel and how that unfolds and how that finishes out and, and being glorified. So, this is what the Word of God says, starting with verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. That's the part we read already. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So, kind of the structure of, of this passage. We basically have a command to be holy, sandwiched in between, right in the middle, uh, instructions on how to actually do it, how, how to achieve holiness, our how-to guide today. And the, the instructions are this. First, we must hope in Christ's return. Second, we must live as strangers. And third, we must remember the cross. Now, if you're an English major, you may have noticed that each one of those actually corresponds with a, with a specific tense, right? So hoping in Christ's return has to do with our perspective on the future, living as strangers. Uh, there's that present progressive ING, that's, that's our perspective on the present. And remembering the cross has to do with our perspective on the past. So if you're trying to remember what was said today, later in the week, or maybe even today, just remember, okay, if I'm trying to pursue holiness as a believer... There's something for me to, to, to do with the past. There's something for me to do with the present. And there's something for me to do with the future. Now, as we dig deeper, let's look back at verse 13. Here's what verse 13 says. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse is, you know, it's a preacher's favorite. I mean, it is packed with action verbs and things for us to do. It could probably be a sermon in and of itself. 
Um, but, but the first image I get when I, when I read about having a mind ready for action, a sober-minded, is really one of a soldier. A soldier who's determined to carry out his duty without any distracted distractions, just that one track-minded kind of focus. I got a mission, I'm going to complete it, I'm going to do it. No distractions. And, and the rest of that verse really tells us what we need to have that kind of focus in. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is another way of talking about the return of Christ. And this isn't a reference to Christ's first coming. We know that. Otherwise, it would have said, set your hope completely on the grace that was already given to you. But instead, it says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. So that's future tense. Hasn't happened yet. However, I think the most interesting phrase in the verse is the command to set your hope completely. I think it's interesting for a variety of reasons, but one is, I mean, especially in this culture, like, we, we tend to think of hope more as a feeling than something you can choose to do, I mean, or, or set, in, set your hope on. I mean, you can even see this in, in the phrases that we say, right? So we say, I'm feeling hopeful, right? But we, we don't say, I'm going to choose to set my hope in whatever it is today. I don't, I don't hear anybody saying that. But Peter commands us to set our hope, which implies that we have complete control over both how much we hope in something and what we're placing our hope in. And then we have this, this word completely, which is really the convicting part, uh, to be honest with you, because now we don't have a way out anymore. I think God knows us all too well, uh, because I'm sure that most of us in this room have some hope in the return of Christ. You have some hope. But if we're 100% honest, it's down the list below a few more previous, our, our temporal, temporal matters, right? Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Chick-fil-A later today or whatever it is, you know, something we can just grasp, something we can see. So my question is this, what's at the top of your list this morning? What is your hope really placed in? To be married one day? To have a certain, a certain number of kids you've always dreamed of? To be richer? to be happier, the return of America to its glory days, that God would keep someone you love from dying, that it would stop raining already. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think like there's a natural part of us that's human that's going to somewhat, that's going to somewhat hope in those things. But the point is, if, 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 if those things fall through, right, if you're not richer, if you're not happier, um, whatever your, your hope is placed in, if that doesn't work out, are you just going to be wrecked from that? Are you just going to not be able to move on? Or, or is your hope really placed in something deeper? Is it placed completely in the return of Christ? It really doesn't leave us with a way out. <laughs> this word completely. <laughs> but what does that have to do with holiness? Right? We're talking about holiness this morning. Well, you see, it has actually everything to do with holiness because when we set our hope on anything other than Christ, we become complacent. Jesus himself preached this truth in Luke 12, 35 through 46. That's Luke 12, 35 through 46. And this is the, Jesus talking himself. It says, Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like a people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. 
Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready and serve them. He will come and have them recline at the table. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter kind of raises his hand. Um, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? He's hoping that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He's like, Lord. Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible manager? His master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Here's the part we really need to focus in on. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. Weak and mild Jesus there for you. Uh, but here's what, what I want us to see this morning. When we don't set our hope completely on the return of Christ, that's when our hearts begin to drift toward a path toward saying, my master is delaying and is coming. And folks, Jesus shows us it's all downhill from there. Because there's a principle at work, and the principle is this. When we really place all of our hope in the return of Jesus, we'll start to live in a way that actually pleases him when he returns. And that means holiness, guys. That means being set apart from the world and the sin and evil that God is going to judge on that very day. All this kind of reminds me when I put my, my kids to bed at night. You know, usually I'll, I'll kiss them or I'll pray with them. I might do a devotional. But at some point during the whole bedtime routine, I explain the rules, right? We remind them of the rules. Hey, don't get out of bed. You know, don't make a bunch of noise. Please don't scream. Don't hit each other. And whatever. <laughs> And then I walk out and close the door, and I've got kind of an ear out. I can just imagine them kind of in their beds sort of waiting for, when is Dad going to be far enough away to where maybe he won't, won't hear? Won't hear it if we kind of break some of those rules, but Dad always hears. So as soon as I start walking back towards their room, and they hear my footsteps coming, then it's suddenly very, very quiet and silent and in order in their room. And you see, they'd rather not be found doing something that they've been asked not to do. What about you? Do you hear the footsteps of your master's return? Are you placing all of your hope in that day because you know what's in store for you? Or have you placed your hope in some other things lately and pushed the whole return of Christ thing down the list of ways? If you feel like you need to do some work in this area, and I think some we all do probably, then I would encourage you to take some steps in applying the Word of God this week. One idea might be to write out your own list, to actually write out a list of what you actually hope in right now. Be honest. Give, your time, you know, give yourself time to self-reflect and see what's at the top of that list for you. What, what are you really hoping in the most right now? Another might be to make an effort to remind yourself of the amazing things that are in store for those who believe 
in Christ at his return. We touched on that a little bit last week, right? But the blessings that we have in store and brush up with Scripture about that. Or maybe even try to answer something about the Lord's return in your quiet time or daily devotional. But no matter what it is, no one can make you, no one can make you set your hope on anything except you. So I encourage you to make the effort this week. Setting all of our hope in Christ's return is an important step in pursuing holiness, but it's not the only one that Peter gives us. So let's dive back into our passage for today. But for now, we're going to skip verse, verse 14. We'll come back to it later. Again, in verses 15 and 16, so the structure of this passage, 15 and 16, in the middle of the verse, that's our kind of call to be holy. Hey, do this. Be holy as God is holy. And then the verses around it, those are the verses that are explaining, this is how you be holy. This is what you do. This is our how-to step uh, manual. So, starting with, with verse 17, it gives us our next step in pursuing holiness. And here's what it says. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves living in reverence during your time living as strangers. Okay, so the first part of the verse honestly sounds a little bit confusing, but it's really pretty simple. Now, allow me to use FUP, that's FUP with a P, I got everybody's attention, uh, Ford's unauthorized paraphrase <laughs> in an effort to explain what Peter is saying. So under the entry for verse 17, here's what it says. Since you know God is your father and that you have been adopted into his family, then you ought to know that he holds everyone to the same standard and he isn't going to give you special treatment just because you're on his VIP list. Pretty much what he's saying. Then Peter wrote the words at the end of the verse, conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. And that's really where we're going to camp out for today. Now, depending on your translation, the word foreigners, or I'm sorry, the word strangers, got ahead of myself in your Bible, might be the word foreigners, or it might be the word sojourners. So the NASB uh, says, during your stay here on earth. Um, the idea in the Greek behind this word is that we as believers are passing through this world on our way to the next, that this, this earthly home is a temporal, not a permanent residence. And that's really crucial when it, comes to, when it comes to holiness. Because when you and I realize that we belong somewhere else, then we start to live like we actually belong somewhere else. Let's think about it another way. Okay, who are my Texans or who are my Southerners in this room? Go ahead and raise your hand loud and proud if you came from the South, if you, if you, you know, at least know kind of got that culture in you. Okay, if you're from Missouri like me, it depends on if you're kind of from the Arkansas side or from the whatever the state above Missouri is. Anyway, um, <laughs> if, you, if you have that background, right, um, something I, 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 love about, I love about you guys is that you remember where you're from and you make sure everybody else remembers that too. <laughs> uh, no matter what, what culture you're in, right? No matter where, what state you're in, there's just some things that are about you that are going to be from that, that upbringing, from that southern, southern way. I mean, you might have to look a little harder in the grocery store for that block of Velveeta cheese, since there's not a whole aisle dedicated to it here in the Northwest, <laughs> both sides. But you're going to find that block of Velveeta cheese. You need it. It's part of, you know, what you're going to be making. Uh, you know, you might not be able to find good barbecue here, but you're going to buy a smoker, and you're going to get it done and get it done right because dad gummit and your mama taught you how to cook. <laughs> the thing is, Southerners really don't feel at home unless they're in the South. 
And that's exactly how we should feel about our eternal home with God and His kingdom. Church, there ought to be something different. There ought to be something different that looks, looks not the same as the world in us. We should not be like the rest of the world. God's ways are set apart. He's holy by nature. We're His children. That's really what we're reading today, that we're to be like God, that we're to be holy like He is holy. I mean, that's exactly how we should feel. We should feel like strangers because we really are strangers. And that means we have to stop trying to fit in. Evaluate your own life right now. Are you living as a stranger in this world? Do you make decisions that the world doesn't understand because you're not from around here? Or have you let the world in a little too much lately? But I'm just going to say it, going out and getting drunk, watching shows like Game of Thrones, using the same dirty language that everybody else uses, that's not living like a stranger. It's not living like a stranger. And, and that has nothing to do with legalism. It has everything to do with living like we actually belong in heaven with God and his people. God has called us to be holy as he is holy. That's what we're reading today. And we can't do that if we consider this world our permanent home. Church, I want us to embrace this reality together today from God's word. We are strangers. We're strangers. So let's review. So far we've learned from Peter's how-to guide on holiness that we must hope completely in the return of Christ, that we must live as strangers. And now, as we look at verses 14, 18, and 19, we must remember the cross. So starting with verse 14 and skipping ahead to verses 18 and 19, we're going to put them together. Let's read. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So verse 14 is really our former ignorance. What is that? Well, it's our past life. It's, it's the life that we lived apart from Christ because, you know, before we knew him, before, before we believed in his gospel. Sin is, is promising the world fulfillment. It's promising the world fulfillment. Sin is saying, I will meet your needs. I will make you happy. I will make your life worth living. But here's what we're reading. Now in Christ, we believers, we're no longer ignorant. We're no, we, longer, we know now. We were redeemed from our empty way of life, as verse 18 puts it. We know that the only one who can truly meet our needs and make us whole is God. And we know that sin is actually the very thing he saved us from because it brings bondage and pain and death. We know that now. The cross reminds us that pursuing holiness is not a drudgery. It's not something we have to do. <laughs> it's our greatest privilege. It's our greatest freedom. Only by the shed blood of Christ are we even enabled, can we even you know, live holy lives unto God. Only by being made holy in our identity by Him. The cross is a reminder that we get to be holy because the forgiveness of Jesus changed our identity. Now, Peter gives us a little something extra in verse 19 that we need to chew on for a moment as well. Now, his choice of words are interesting, and they show us that there's something else for us to remember about the cross that should help us live holy lives. Verse 19 says, His blood is precious, and that Jesus was perfect when he went to the cross as the lamb in our place. I believe Peter 
uses this, this wording, the imagery of the lamb, and it highlights the worth of Jesus' blood because he wants us to consider the price that was paid on our behalf and exactly what that price really paid for. Jesus suffered and died so that unholy people could believe in him to be made holy. You see, I think Peter really wants us to see the gravity of the situation when we as believers choose not, choose not to be holy and what we're throwing away. What a tragedy it is when we set that gift aside to run after those old sinful desires once again. That gift was bought at a price. So the cross reminds us that holiness is our greatest privilege, but it also reminds us that holiness was bought for us at the highest price. Imagine two high school students, one normal run-of-the-mill student, okay, got two parents, normal life, and then one student that has a struggling single mom. For 18 years, the struggling single mom has been working two, sometimes three jobs just to provide for her family. And she's, she has a secret, and that is that she's saving aside every year a little bit of money, as much as she can, to pay the way forward for her, for her son's college expenses. And when it comes time for graduation um, for both of these seniors, high school seniors, um, the normal student actually, I don't know, he wins the lottery or something happens where he gets a lot of money, and, and his college is paid for. It's, it's taken care of. And, and to the surprise of the single mom's son, his college is actually also paid for because she's in secret been saving away all this money, and it's paid for the last cent. She tells him when he graduates. Here's my question. Who do you think is more likely to value his education and keep going when things get tough? I would think it'd be the single mom's kid And the reason is because of what she had to sacrifice for him. The more you sacrifice for something, the more valuable that thing becomes, the more valuable that thing becomes, the higher the value you place in it. The work of Jesus on the cross was the greatest sacrifice ever made. And when we remember it, we remember the value of holiness. And that is an effective motivator when it comes to actually living it out. So what can you actually do when it comes to remembering the cross? It's kind of a more of a philosophical point, like other than just, hey, I think I'm going to remind myself to remember the cross more. What can, we, what can we do about this? Well, I'll just tell you that I personally don't let a single day go by um, without remembering the, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ in my quiet time. I don't let a day go by. It's basically like communion without the elements. Um, so that might be a step that you could take practical way that you could you could remember the cross more other than that i would just say actual having actual communion with family or friends there's nothing in the bible that says that that communion must be facilitated by a pastor in a church building okay open up your bible to first corinthians 11 or to one of the gospel accounts of the last supper make sure your heart's right and remember the sacrifice of the savior so as we wrap things up today Let's review Peter's guide to believers on how to be holy. First, we must hope completely in the return of Christ. Placing all of our hope in anything else makes us complacent. Second, we must live as strangers. When you realize you belong somewhere else, you'll start living like it. And third, we must remember the cross. Because doing so informs us that holiness is a privilege that was bought for us at the highest price. 
But maybe you're here today and you've never actually, you don't know if you have this whole holiness problem resolved between you and God. And I just want you to hear, you're not going to be able to do much with the sermon I just preached with these three steps. Because, you know, the first thing that you have to do is you have to be made holy by, by Jesus. That's what I've been talking about throughout this sermon. The first step is being made holy by Jesus. How do you do that? Well, you pray. You pray to Jesus and you, and you believe in the work and identity of who he is and what he did on the cross and that he rose again. You commit his life to him. And in that moment, he comes in and he, he's the one that enables us to be holy. He's the, he's the only way. The Holy Spirit is the only, it's a very necessary piece for sanctification. We can't, we can't do this stuff on our own. I want you to hear that this morning. So if you're here and you, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, well, I'm glad you're here. And I want to give you an opportunity uh, to pray with me this morning about that. Lord, I just pray for anyone in this room right now, Lord, that you would do your work, that you would do your work, that the fruit of the kingdom would be harvested this morning, that whoever you brought into these doors that does not know you, Lord, that you, you would convict their hearts. Lord, you would, you would show them that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with all of us before we, before we are washed in your blood, Jesus. There's something wrong with all of us. We're not holy like you were holy. We're not set apart. <laughs> we're not set apart. Lord, I just pray for that one in, in this room or whoever it is. Um, God, that they would believe in this moment, that they would pray to you, that they believe in what you did on the cross, that they believe that you rose again, that you're God, that you saved them, and you're the one who enables them to be made right with you and to live in such a way um, that's pleasing to you. Lord, maybe, maybe there are those in this room that are just tired, tired of the whole lie of sin, that sin will fulfill them. They know it won't. They're empty. God, again, I pray for such a one that they would receive you and be saved. God, for the rest of us who've already made that decision, the believers in this room today, Lord, help us apply these steps because we have been made holy. We've been given this gift of being made holy. Lord, help us to live it out and not cast it aside. Help us to be set apart as your church. Lord, bring revival to this land. Bring revival to this land. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.